I have been gnawing this bone about the various uh, signs in the Scriptures regarding where we are in terms of all these prophecies being fulfilled. And uh, it has become so very clear that it is at the door. I want to go back to Ezekiel just for a moment. I won't just lay background for what is said today. But he says here, after showing the 430 days or each day a year, where Ezekiel laid on his side for Israel and for Judah. Same context, he says here in chapter 5, You shall burn with fire a third part of the to when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And uh, famine, pestilence, sword, and then to talk about. Then the context doesn't change. Uh, he mentions the third part again in verse 12 goes on to chapter 7, and I want to emphasize something here. I think I covered it a little bit last week, but uh, go to chapter 7 of Ezekiel, verse 2, the end of it. An end. The end is come upon the four corners of the land. Now, notice how many times he repeats that thought in, in different words, but the same thought. Next verse, now is the end come upon you. Now, he's talking about when that 430 years is over, which I think we have been able to nail down as starting at Roanoke in 1587, uh, when that colony was established and ending here in 2017. Uh, Well, it's still 2017 according to the heavenly calendar. But going on, the end has come. I will send my anger on you. Uh, Come on down to verse 6. Well, verse 5. Thus says the eternal God, an evil and only evil, behold, is come. So he says the evil is coming on you. Verse 6. An end is come. The end is come. It watches for you. It is come. says three times in one verse. Now, God emphasizes something sometimes by repeating it twice, maybe even three times. But notice this continuing. The morning is come to you, O you that dwell in the land, the time is come. The day of trouble is near, and not echoing again of the mountains. Verse 8, Now will I shortly pour out my fury on you. Go on to verse 10, Behold the day, behold it is come. In the morning it has gone forth, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, Uh, the almond rod blossomed early in the spring before anything, so he's showing uh, maybe the time of year, the blossoming, uh, that's echoed in many other scriptures, which we'll not get to today. Verse 12, the time is come, the day draws near, let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, Uh, and they might not even return, you may not even have to pay your bills because they won't even be around to take the money, verse 13. And then it talks again in verse 17, the sword is without, the famine, and so on. So he's talking about the same thing that occurs at the time the 4.30 is over. It doesn't happen on the self-same day like Passover did in Exodus 12, but it's time, it's come, he says, shortly and near. So it'll be shortly after that 430 years is over that these horrible things are coming upon the nation. 
Now, we could go to the 70 years and show the same thing because I think it has ended as well, and I covered that last week. So when those two events occur, the same thing happens. The nation goes down. Babylon is destroyed, which is our nation. Uh, it's also Israel. And God begins to draw out and to bless his people. So we know that the nation is in deep trouble just ahead of us, and I would say within 12 months. Uh, the financial collapse and the destruction of this nation will occur from now. Now, we know that the church has been spewed out of Christ's mouth. Uh, we've gone over that a thousand times, I guess, to show that and what has happened to it. But I want to take one more look at our recent history today because I think it's imperative that we grasp just where we are, knowing what is just ahead of us. Here in this book, of our nation, and that it will soon the whole nation, and in fact, all Israel, including wherever Israelites are. It also is a picture of what has happened to worldwide church of God, and I've gone through it from that standpoint before. But the nation is about to be. Right where the Book of Lamentations is, the church has already gone through it, and it's just like it says. It's not a prophecy of the church. It's still a near-term prophecy for the nations of Israel. But now let's add a third layer, and that is, let's think of this little congregation as we go. Let's look at it from our perspective to see what we might learn from it and where we need to go next. So we've not looked at it from that standpoint. And when I read it again the other day, it just jumped out at me that much of what is here you will recognize as being right now, right here, where we are. Now, you wouldn't have noticed that <clears throat> ten years ago, five years ago we would have still applied it all to something that is about to happen to the country, has already happened to worldwide, and it finds itself in this state. And now as we go through here, we will find that you and I, we, are in the same boat. So all the imagery that is here does not completely apply in every instance, because when, you're, when you've got principles you're trying to get across and conditions some may apply more to the nation, some may apply more to what happened in worldwide, and then some will have an application with us. Because when you write something about three different happenings, the, the details will be somewhat different, okay? But the point is the same. So let's examine it. I'd like to get through all of it today because I don't want to do this for two weeks. I don't want to do it to you. 
How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? Well, that was there's there's the nation, and it's going to be decimated by over 90% shortly. There's worldwide that was around 150,000, and it's down to on a good day 15 maybe today. Uh, I mean splinters and all almost. Uh, and then you look at us who went at our biggest from 150 down to hardly 10% of that at the moment, or barely over 10% of it. So it applies in all three cases, right off the bat. How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? Well, the nation was great among the nations more than the church or than we have. So we see how there's a, a difference in application a little bit. But still in all, any influence that the church might have had is pretty much gone, just like that which the nation had is about gone now. She weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They become her enemies. Now, we've had friends here who have departed or who have become enemies. So you see that it, it applies with you and me. Judah, the church, is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of servitude. She dwells among the heathens. On our local level, uh, God refers to some of the rebels here as now as Gentiles in Zechariah 1 and other places. So we're living among the heathen. Ezekiel says we'd be among briars, thorns, and scorpions. She finds no rest. Every, you know, everywhere we turn, there's, <laughs> there's difficulty. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. Uh, they've taken over part of the land. So you see, we're here. The ways of Zion, and we're the closest ones to Zion, do mourn, because none come to the solemn feast. That's true of the church. Overall, it's true to us. I was just looking the other day at a picture of all the people who were the feast lined up out here in front of the church building, and man, it was about 150 people there. Not anymore. <laughs> we're not there anymore. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. So uh, society, the situation is not as it was. Notice verse 5, her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. They think they're doing just fine, thank you, and God's on their side. For the eternal God, the eternal, has afflicted her. This affliction, this decimation that has occurred to us did not come without cause. And each of us needs to look in our heart and mind and see how much we are culpable, how much of what has occurred is my fault, let's say, uh, because you can't fix anybody's fault but yours. I can only fix mine. You can only fix yours. So we all have to be honest with ourselves and say, did we also get spewed like the whole church did? And since I'm the physical leader here, I have to take more of that on myself than anybody else does. Uh, and... I do, and have been, because I want this reversed. I want it fixed, and I think you do too. So, uh, 
For the multitude of her transgressions, her children are gone into captivity before the enemy, been taken away. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become deer that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the hunter. So, uh, any animal in that condition being hunted is in trouble. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy, and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Now, that might be more in terms of worldwide right there, because uh, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, the holy days were all changed, and those who left mocked at those who continued in that. I, I don't see as much of that right here right now, so it applies, see how that one applies maybe more to that situation. But certainly the principle is here for all of us, and some of it's pretty specific. Verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. So if we came apart, there's got to be some reason, and we have to be part of that reason, don't we? All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sighs and turns backward, tries to hide what she is. We read something, I think it was just last week or the week before, about how our shame uh, was there and how our shame would be removed, that God would remove it and make us uh, leap for joy again in the future. Soon coming. Anyway, her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembers not her last end. Therefore, she came down greatly. She had no comforter, O Eternal. Behold my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. So God says, I did this to you because of your Laodiceanism and whatever else, whatever sins we've had, and there's no place to turn. Because when God turns his face from you, he's not hearing your prayers in the way that you want. He's not hearing your prayers in the way that he wants. The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, trying to take everything we've had. Didn't get it all, still trying. For she has seen her sanctuary, or the heathen, she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom you did command that they should not enter into your congregation. We had people meeting with us who were rebelling over there in our own sanctuary, our own hall, rent strike, and so on. And they shouldn't be there anymore. Now they're not, thankfully. All her people sigh, they seek bread, spiritual help. They have given their pleasant things for food to relieve the soul. See, O Eternal, and consider, for I am become vile. Uh, consider David here and his approach in the Psalms. I've thought about it a lot lately. Uh, if you, you see a pattern in the Psalms where David will talk about his sins are ever before him and how he is a constant disgrace and how he wants to be different than he is and he's asking God to forgive him and have mercy on him. So he acknowledges over and over again how much a sinner he is to God. And then he asks God to get rid of his enemies. 
Now, his enemies think they're righteous. Right? Think back on Korah. He thought he was righteous. He said, and the people with him, well, God can speak through us just as easily as you. We're just as important as you are. And he thought God would be on his side and get rid of Moses for him so that he could do a better job than Moses had. And then he, for a brief moment, understood that that was not the right approach until the ground closed over him. So, you know, people don't do things that they have not figured out that they are justified in doing. They will figure out a way why it is okay and it is righteous and this is what they ought to do before they ever do it. So then it's very, very hard to talk to them and get them to realize they've made a mistake because they had it figured out and justified before they even made it and thinking that God must be wanting me to do this. You know, the human heart and mind is very deceitful and desperately wicked. And we have to question our own motives for what we are doing and what we are thinking. Because we are into self-deception as human beings. We will deceive ourselves given any opportunity that whatever we are doing is correct and that God must love it. That's why it was such a shock to us all, really, when Worldwide got blown completely apart, we thought we were God's church on earth and everything was fine. But they weren't, and we weren't. So David was doing his best to be a righteous man, so he prayed for forgiveness for his faults. And yet, on the other hand, he realized that his enemies were not doing what they should be because he called them liars and thieves and fraudulents and murders and, and all kinds of things and asked God to deal with them. So we are never truly in a position of strength, are we? As long as we're human. Now he says the righteous are bold as lions and Paul told us that we should press forward with faith in believing that God is with us. But we have to constantly be examining our hearts and minds to be sure we are truly in line with God's way because it's so easy to depart from it and kid ourselves that we're still following God. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous road. It's a hard road that we have to walk. So... We have to be humble and contrite before God because he, he looks to that kind who will admit our own errors to him. We don't have to confess to each other. Uh, he says that we are to confess to him, confess and forsake. It's between us and him, ultimately, anyway, because we can't save each other. We can help each other. We can encourage each other and sharpen each other, but only God can save us. And so it is he and his son who deal with our sins, not each other. So we, we must be careful. Anyway, verse 12. Is it nothing to, to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow, which is done to me, wherewith the eternal has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. We look around and say, man, what a mess. And the whole world will mock, if they remember it, worldwide. And the whole church mocks us. 
And even our enemies here mock us to this day. So this is an affliction from God all the way from the nation down to you and me. And we've got to fix it. From above, he sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against me. Now, these are some of the same words you'll find in the Psalms that David wrote. It's dramatic. It's emotional. Uh, you know, we don't have to have committed every sin that's listed here because our deceitful, desperately wicked mind will have somehow, some way, to violate every principle of God. So, that's why we have fire in our bones. You know, Christ said, not only don't do it, don't think it. So, who of us is exonerated? Who of us is above not ever having thought evil, and evil continually for that matter? So it all fits. If not in deed, certainly in thought. And the fire prevails against my bones. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He has made my strength to fall. The Eternal has delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise up. Same way David felt. My enemies have got me pinned down. I, I, I can't get up. Recognize anything here? The Eternal has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Eternal has trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, is in a winepress. Well, we don't have many young people left. I mean, this is speaking of a larger group of people. But the same conditions prevail, okay? For these things I weep. My eye, my eye runs down with water. Jeremiah writing as if it's him. Well, he went through a lot, too. They kicked him around a bit and threw him in the dungeon and this and that and the other thing and uh, put him down uh, verbally, constantly, and tried to get him killed. So he's saying, I weep. Because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Now, Christ is the Redeemer. Who should save us? Now, he says he will. There are many promises that he will. But we have to do our part, and we've been over that many, many times. But let's recognize where we still are, okay? It's always darkest before the dawn. Uh, all these prophecies are about to come to pass, so it behooves us to recognize where we are and why we are here, what got us here. So that when he says, seek me with all your heart, we know why we need to. It's because we haven't, and we must get there. So he's describing us as we still are. Our enemies still prevail over us, don't they? What are we going to do about it? Where's our Redeemer? I hope he's very near. But what do I need to do to be sure he takes care of it? Verse 17, Zion spreads forth her hands and there's none to comfort her. Where do we look for comfort? I don't know where we better look. The Eternal has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. God has said, 
to Jacob. And you'll find it in many places that we would be surrounded by enemies. And that's on a national, a whole church, and a small little splinter basis. Jerusalem is a menstruous woman among them. In those days, they put them out of camp, get them out of sight. And he says, that's the way we are among our adversaries. Get them out of camp. Get rid of them. The eternal is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. So we all rebel against God. You know, I don't know of a day in my life that I don't in some way rebel against God. Some thought, some emotion, some feeling is contrary to God's way of life. How many of you have gone a month without rebelling against God in some way in your head? No. I'm not even sure I make it through five minutes sometimes. But a day, that's a long time not to have some kind of selfish, uh, greedy, lust, vanity, jealousy, something that's of the flesh that goes through our minds. So, yeah, we have rebelled against God, and we do daily. Well, it needs to be minimized as much as possible in our human state. Paul is a weird good company, a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Christ only. So after he'd taught others as an apostle for years and years, he still considered himself as a human being wretched. That's a pretty sorry state. Because his human nature was the same as it always had been. Now, we can overcome sin to some degree, but as long as we're human, our nature hasn't changed. And the minute we let off the pedal the slightest, our human nature will come to the fore. We try to walk in the Spirit, but the flesh is always there. And the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we can be blindsided in a moment. It is a struggle, moment by moment and thought by thought. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. How long a period do you think you could say you have gone where every thought you had was the thoughts of Christ? That would be a pretty short period of time, I think, for any of us. So when he says this, you know, he, he wants us to be the bride of Christ. He wants us to be just like Christ. Thinking about that a little bit this morning, and there where it says that we are to turn the hearts of the fathers uh, to the children. Well, turning the children's heart to the Heavenly Father obviously is level one. That's the most desperately needed change is to have our heart be with our Father in Heaven. Then it says to turn our hearts, our thoughts, to the pit from which we were digged there in Isaiah 51, or to all those in Hebrews 11, our, our fathers, to turn to our patriarch, patriarchal fathers. And you know, I've thought of that in the past 
Well, yeah, I'd like to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Moses, and all those people. You know what's real easy to say? That's easy to say. But the reason God said to become close to our fathers of the past is because they set some wonderful uh, attitudes of faith and hope and love and obedience and repentance. And I got thinking, you know, I need to be just like Moses. He was a friend of God. There are not many people that God spoke of as his friends in Scripture, right? Real short list, except Christ offered it to the apostles later, which was a bigger number. I don't know to what degree they achieved it. But it is not blasphemous to tell God, I want to be like Moses. I want to be just like Moses. Don't want to lose my temper a time or two, but other than that, I want to be like Moses. It's not wrong to say, I want to be like David. He was a man after God's own heart. Read his Psalms and say, that's the way I want to be. If I do sin, I want to repent. I want to get close to God. I want to talk to God in a very close, confidential relationship where we become close. David was very close to God. Look at how intimately he talked throughout the Psalms with God. And the, some of the things he said that I would be afraid to say because he felt um, confident in the relationship. There in the New Testament, it talks about the disciple whom Christ loved. Now, all the disciples who became apostles were God-fearing, obedient, converted men. But something about John, Christ responded to in a way that he did not the others, or John did to him at least, and felt comfortable laying with his head on his chest and talking while everybody sat around the fire. And I thought, I would like to become like John was with Christ. Is that blasphemous? Who, who do I think I am that I would be to him as John was? There's not a thing wrong with that. The reason those examples are given is because God wants us to become just like that. And that's why he tells us to look to our patriarchal fathers is so we can become just like them and have just as good a relationship with him as they had. So when I tell God I want to be like David and John and Moses, I'm not telling God I want to be important like they were. I'm telling God I want to have the same kind of character they had. I want to be like them so that you and I can have a close relationship like they had with you. That's what he means when he says turn the hearts of the children to the fathers so that they can become just like them. Now, he tells us very clearly, does he not, that we are to be just like Christ? Yeah. He will marry like kind. 
And he says that we are to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, walk as he walked, do everything we do as much possibly as he can, just like he did. So if that's the total highest standard is to be like the Father and the Son, then to try to be like some of the fathers of old who were godlike certainly is no reach. In some respects, they're a stepping stone to becoming more like the Father and the Son because they were human. And James said of Elijah, he was a man of like passion as we are. He included Elijah and himself, James, and the congregation to whom he was written, all of Israel. But he was a man of passions, just as Elijah was. And yet God used Elijah to raise the dead, and to cause rain not to come, and rain to come back. So we are discussing people who are like us, and how they overcame and grew to be godlike. And it's a little easier to accept the idea I'd like to be Moses or like Moses or Joseph than it is to be like God, because the gap seems at least a little smaller. You know? It's at least a little smaller gap. So that's why God tells us, turn to me, turn to your fathers. Be like them, so you'll be like me. And this we need to be doing. Well, I took quite a bit of time there. Let's get back to this. But I think this is important, that we get it. That our minds are rebellious against God by nature. So it takes a lot of work to be like the patriarchs and to be like Christ. (coughs) Uh, 19... I call for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city, like they died off, while they sought their food to relieve their souls. Uh, It became selfish. And Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1 go into that in detail. So he says, Behold, O Eternal, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled, my heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaves, at home there is as death. You know what? When I realized that the 430, the 70, and the almost 65 years of Isaiah 7 and 8 are here, that it has come, that it is near, says it, what, 10 or 12 times there, it has come. There's not going to be any more delay. That scares me. It scares me very, very deeply because I know I am a long way from being what I need to be. And I have been doing more praying and more studying and more meditating and thinking about all this in the last several couple of months or even a little longer than I had in a long, long time. You know what? Fear is a great motivator. I remember one time having a bull right on my tail, and I was just a little guy, and I went over a six-foot fence like it wasn't even there. I couldn't have climbed over that fence that quickly, jumped and climbed, without a great motivator behind me. I was scared as I could be. 
Now, when I see that all these things that we've talked about all these years are at the door, there's going to be no more delay, and there's no way I can get around the end of that 70, that 430, and that 65. There's no way around it. It is here. I'll tell you, I'm scared. I want to be as close to God as I can possibly get. And between what he's instructed us to do, to rise and fresh and get rid of our enemies, and draw near to him with our whole heart, those are my two focuses now. Spend time with both. But we all have the same goal here. That's why I'm sitting here talking about it. When you know that the time is there and all this stuff is going to happen now, I want to be included in the good part of the remnant that's gathered, not in the national part that is about to be destroyed. And now I know at the end of the 430, the 70, and almost the end of the 65, that there isn't any more delay that within about 12 months from now, this nation will not exist. The handwriting is on the wall. And God will have gathered his people to Zion and be working with them. And I want to be there. I want you to be there. So let's be serious here. That's why I'm going through Lamentations, to let us know, you know, this is where we are. This is, what, this is where God has caused us to be because of our rebellions, day in and day out, spiritually against him. We're not talking about people who are shaking their fists at God. I don't mean that. I mean our nature rebels against the thoughts of God, the ways of God, and we need to be as unrebellious as possible. Behold, O eternal, I'm in distress. I think I read that. Verse 21, they, they have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Some of them are still trying to put me in jail. They're glad because God has done to this congregation what he's done to it. They want to take it over. Well, they wouldn't tell you they're happy about it. But I don't believe them. They're liars. They're glad you've done it. You will bring the day that you have called, and they shall be like me. They're going to go down too, just like we've gone down. Let all their wickedness come before you, and do unto them as you've done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. That could have been written in the Psalms as easily as not. Because that was the exact attitude that David portrayed that Jeremiah has here. Chapter 2, how has the eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger and cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? We know many scriptures that say he will only be angry for a short while and it will change. But this is where we've been. His face turned from us. Now, I believe he's going to turn his face back very shortly now. Very shortly. And I want him to smile on you and me, on all of us. And I want him to bring others that he will smile upon. So let's not get left out when this happens. 
The Eternal has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and has not pitied. You see, this is still... Uh, swallowed up the church houses, the church, the congregations, but it's about to happen, according to Isaiah 5, in our nation, where all of our houses will be taken away and uh, enemies will come and dwell in them. So it's a prophecy about to happen to the nation, but it's already happened to the church. We don't even meet in our own hall, church hall here, or church house. We meet here in the house because there's not enough left to be worth paying the electric bill over there. You know, we're here because this is more convenient and easier and cheaper and there aren't enough of us. We look like a just a little handful in the corner over there. So this, this all happened. Um, verse 3, he's cut off in his fierce anger all the horn, the power of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devours round about. He's done it to us, but he's told us now to rise and thresh, and he'll give us a horn of iron and hooves of brass and a sharp mouth to thrash our enemies, thrash our enemies, thrash them. So this is going to change, and he tells us what we need to do about it. So let's look at from that standpoint. Here we are. This is where we need to be. We've been being threshed ourselves. He says, now put that and go thresh them for James. That's his direction. That's his instruction. Micah 4, Isaiah 41. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy. He stood up with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Eternal was an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all her palaces, destroyed his strongholds, and has increased the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. lamentation. He's violently taken away his tabernacle. Where's the house of the great God in Pasadena today? Gone. In the hands of heathen. As if it were of a garden. He has destroyed the places of the assembly. The Eternal has caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. Yeah, now they're keeping Christmas and Easter and Sunday. And as he spies in the indignation of his anger, the king and the priests, the leaders are nothing, he says. The Eternal has cast off his altar. He has abhorred his sanctuary. The sanctuary needs cleansed. Didn't Daniel say that? Daniel 9? He suddenly realized the 70 years were up. And the things were going to change immediately. And it scared Daniel. And he began to fast and pray immediately for God's help and forgiveness. Now that's the place we're in right now is Daniel 9 with Daniel. Realizing the 70 years is up. It's done. So is the 430. The 65's almost. <coughs> So it's desecrated. It has to be rebuilt. That's where Haggai and Zechariah come in. Rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and get it the way it ought to be. Because it hasn't been, and it's destroyed. And even we have felt that, and we need to take that to heart. So we're decimated as well. God didn't let this happen for no reason. Verse 8, the Eternal is purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. 
stretched out a line. He's not withdrawn his hand from destroying. He destroying. Uh, made the rampart protection to lament. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He's destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. But the law is no more. Worldwide has done away with the law, gone back to Protestantism. But even here, the law is no more in some respects. You and I are still trying to keep it and do it. So we got people all around us and in and among us who are lying and thieving and defrauding and extorting. We can't do anything about it so far. The law is of no effect. People are just acting any way they want to. Doesn't matter. Live in fornication right here on the property. An open, open fornication. There's no law. Now, is this applying or not? The prophets also find no vision from the eternal. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. This might be a speaking of the whole church, but still, I kind of sit in silence and cast dust on my head, as it says here. It's an emotional thing. They've girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. These people around here despise and mock you and me, and some of us even here say, well, I don't like the way this is being handled, or you ought to go after them. I didn't have anything to go after them with. We do now, and we're going after it. We want to change the book of Lamentations, okay? From where we are today to the next chapter. Let's 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 read this chapter, brethren, today, and then let's shut it and move on to the next chapter, if at all possible. Do what is necessary to complete this chapter and ask God to move us into the next one where he turns and his face shines upon us and he hears and answers. He goes on to talk about the same thing. My eyes fail with tears and my guts are upset and so on. Uh, Verse 12, they say to their mothers, where's corn and wine? Church mothers. Church is the mother of us all, Galatians 4. Where's corn and wine? Got a spiritual famine, Amos 8 says. When they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom. Can the church help us? Well, no, it can't help either. It's in trouble. Because we're all part of it, and we're all in trouble. Verse 13, What things shall I take to witness for you? What things shall I liken you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal you to... To you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion. For your breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? How do we get this divide, this breach between us and God fixed? Tells us in Isaiah 58 that those who keep his Sabbaths and deal their bread to the poor and do all the things that Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will be called the healers of the breach. So here he's saying there is a great breach between us and God is the reason he can't turn his face to us. He hates sin. And until our sin is removed like a cloud per Isaiah 44, and in one day, as it says in Zechariah 3, uh, he can't turn his face to us. So the breach has to be fixed. 
But today we're just examining the fact that it's still there. Otherwise, we would be being healed. Otherwise, we would be getting answers left and right from God. He says, when we turn to him with our whole heart there in Jeremiah 29, then he will turn to us and hear our prayers. And he says, so turn to me and find me, and I will be found of you. He wants us to find him. We covered that last week. We need to get it. He wants us to find him. So he says, come and look for me, and I'll let you find me. He's willing. He's ready. He wants that. It is his good pleasure to give the kingdom to his people. But we've got to do our part. And we want. And that's why this breach is here. The prophets have seen vain and foolish things for you. They've not discovered your iniquity, turned you away from the captivity, but have seen for you false burdens and causes of banishment. It was a vain and foolish thing to think it was all going to end in 72 and 75 and 82 and whatever other time you wanted to pick. Because the signs hadn't been fulfilled. So those who were trying to teach prophecy couldn't get it right because they didn't know. They didn't understand. David didn't, I mean, Daniel didn't understand. So he went back and read Jeremiah and said, wow, it's here. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Repent. That's the thing to do. One of the most righteous men ever walked the face of the earth was Daniel. We need to be like Daniel. <coughs> All that passed by clapped their hands at you. They hissed and wagged their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? We used to think they were the one true church on earth, everything was great, we're all going to jump on a 747 and go to Peter and everything would be fine. We've been told a long story. We hadn't been taught to repent and to be like God in the way that we needed to be. So they all wagged their heads at us, verse 16. Verse 17, the Eternal has done that which he had devised. He has fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. Well, days of old, Revelation 3 to us, I will spew you out. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And he has caused your enemy to rejoice over you. He has set up the power of the horn of your adversaries so that they get uh, the upper hand on you. Their heart cried to the Eternal, a wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest, let not the apple of your eye cease. Now Christ says we're the apple of his eye there in Zechariah 2, but he will not forget. This implies that he's the apple of our eye, and we'd better not cease to cry and wish and hope for him. We could insert the whole book of the Song of, song of Songs right here. Because he talks about a guy there, he's right. <coughs> and how she did not respond to him in the way that she should have. So, arise, cry out in the night. You know, the watches, pour out your heart like water.
walk around here with tears falling off day in and day out. Out of your heart and mind. Behold, O eternal and consider to whom you have done this. He's our portion. I guess my mic quit. I hope everybody's been hearing. He says, The eternal is good, verse 25, to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. So we're to wait patiently and seek him. That's what Habakkuk said. He had to do. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. Now, this is a very encouraging part, which is in the middle of chapter 3. There's five five chapters in Lamentations, and right in the middle of it, when he's... I mean, this has been depressing so far. It hasn't been much fun. But right in the middle of it, 
He gives us some encouragement. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. I could say a lot about that. You give kids too much too early, and first thing you know, they don't appreciate anything. They never grow up. Uh, let's move on down a little bit. I want to get through this. I don't want to come back. Let's go down to verse 39. Wherefore does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? <laughs> what, what gripe do we have when we get chastised or punished for things that we're actually doing? Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the eternal. That's been the message that I have preached out of the prophets now for over 22 years, 23rd year into it. Let us lift up our heart with our hands to God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. You have not pardoned. That's where we are. So he says, when you turn to me with your whole heart, then I will pardon. <coughs> you have covered us with anger and persecuted us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that our prayers should not pass through. We want blessing, we want honor, we want growth, we want things to be peaceful in the church. Pray all you want, have done any good. We've got to get him to turn his face back to us. You ever have a kid that was in a rebellious attitude and you had to figure out some way to change the resentment, the anger, the frustration of that child and get him where he would smile and laugh with you again. That's the same with God. We have got to do whatever is necessary to get him to smile and laugh with us again and to bless us again. We have got to convince him that we should be forgiven and shown love. We've got to convince him of that. He says, when you do it, you'll find me. So we've got to do it. Starts talking about all of our depression and frustration again through the rest of this chapter. Says verse 49, My eye trickles down and ceases not without any intermission. I just cry day and night till the eternal look down and behold from heaven. So he's showing we have a very, very important part in getting this turned around. He's described the way it is. Now what are you going to do about it? That's what he's talking about here. Uh, verse 57, You drew near in the day that I called upon you. You said, Fear not. Now we can go through the prophecies, and I've showed them to you many times, where he tells us not to fear, but to trust him. So that's all he's doing in Lamentations. You find yourself in terrible trouble in chapters 1, 2, and partly 3. Now what are you going to do about it? Don't fear. Turn to God. Let's go to chapter 4. How is the gold down? How is the most fine gold change? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out on the top of every street. What did Christ say? The temple would be destroyed and not one stone upon another? Look at the church today. Look at us today few little pebbles left. The precious sons of Zion comparable to fine gold, how are they esteemed as common, everyday clay pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? 
<clears throat> Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to the young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostrich in the wilderness. An ostrich has a very powerful leg that can kick you over and kill you. <clears throat> the tongue of the sucking child cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread and no man breaks it to them. If you do have young people left in some of the churches, they say, what's in it for me? What is there? What's left of the church? Why should I be around? Nobody to date, nobody to marry. What's the point? Well, the point is God. The point is this will change if we do our part. And it's going to change very quickly for those who will do their part. But those who remain rebels, we've already read many scriptures that show they're going to go into the tribulation and all die there. Uh, let's go on down a ways. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11. The Eternal has accomplished His fury. He has poured out His fierce anger and has kindled a fire in Zion. And that has devoured the foundations thereof. Talked about the stones being cast down just prior to this. <coughs> the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. There was a time when worldwide was riding high and no one would have thought that could have been brought down. And boy, you'd turn around twice and it was done. <laughs> the heathen were, had taken over and it was gone. It died. It was Sardis. It's dead. They wouldn't have believed it. For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. You know, Herbert Armstrong had gone and visited with all, all these kings and dignitaries and presidents in the world and, and uh, had built this fine edifice and had the Vienna Symphony and all, you know, on and on and on it went. And people have thought, boy, that looks pretty solid. That's pretty stable. That's, that's, that's going to be there. It was built to stay there. And then suddenly, just gone. Poof. This nation is in the same position. We'll read about it right here. It says it's going to come in a day, in a short while in Revelation 18 and other places. Just poof. And this nation will be gone. And I believe it's within 12 months again. Won't be here anymore. Be gone. One-third of us will be dead of famine and pestilence. One-third will be in captivity. And one will have died by the, one-third by the sword. And a sword drawn after the third that were taken captive. Just like that. Bang. Verse 16. The anger of the Eternal has divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders. That was one of our biggest problems. We lost respect for authority. It's one of the biggest problems right here on this property. Was the authority always what it should be? Worldwide? No, we all got our war stories. Was Nelson? Was I? Were the elders here always what we ought to be? No, we weren't. Was Moses always what he ought to be? Was David the king? Was Paul? Was James? Was Peter? No. Did Ananias and Sapphira rebel? Did Alexander the coppersmith rebel? Those men weren't perfect. But God put them there to do a job. 
And when you disrespect what God has done, uh, division occurs. Verse 17, As for us, our eyes as yet failed for our vain help, and our watching we have watched for a nation that could not save us. And it talks about how they wait for us and want to cut us off. Uh, let's go down to verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwell in the land of Utes, or Utah. The cup also shall pass through you. You shall be drunken and shall make yourself naked. They'll reveal themselves to what they really are, our Mormon neighbors around us. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. So he begins to give us a little hope here that in spite of all the dire circumstances we've been in and gone through these last decades, it's about accomplished. God has caused to repent around the world a 10% remnant who will be willing to follow him, and he is going to stir them to come build his temple. It's, it's almost done. It's near. It's close. No more echo. It's here. He will no more carry you away into captivity. He will visit your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover your sins. This area is going to be set aside and reserved for us, and those around us who would quash us if they had a chance will be gone. Chapter 5, quickly. Remember, O Eternal, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. So now see, from talking about depressing things, here in chapter 5, he shows the example of prayer. Let's get close to God. Let's make it paramount. Our number one focus is get close to God. Dispelling enemies is a focus. But the biggest overall focus is get close to God. Behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We're orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. We're all old and decrepit and about to die. My words, but they fit. We're given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Verse 6. We're about to be taken over as a nation, and spiritually have already been done so by the enemies of God. Uh, the servants have ruled over us. There's none that delivers out of their hand. Verse 8, we got our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Trouble, it's all coming. Our skin was black like an oven because of the famine. They ravished the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. So physically it's about to happen in our nation. Spiritually it's already happened in the church. And it's still happening right here with you and me. So we need to get close to God. Princes are hanged up by their hand. Hang somebody by their hand and they'll hang there till they die. And then eventually the body will rot and fall off the shoulder. The faces of elder were not honored. Big important point. He brings it up again. They took the young men to grind and the children fell under the wood. Slavery. They kill the old ones and uh, use the young ones as slaves. The elders have ceased from the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. This is our nation right here. Our young people are going to be turned away from their music. Uh, the elders who have been dishonored because of what they are, 
and so on, uh, the crown of us thinking we're great as a nation is about to be knocked off. Woe to us that we've sinned. <coughs> For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. We can hardly see where to go, where to walk, what to do, as a nation and as a church. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Foxes were Edomites back then. Uh, Christ called Herod a fox because he was half Edomite. And we have Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites all around us. They're more that than they are Israelites, these Mormons around us. And Zion is walked about by them, not by us. That has to change. If Zion is where we go for refuge and safety, it's got to be ours. can't be theirs anymore. It's about to change. It's going to get better if we do our part. You'll eternal remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. He, here he's, he's focusing us here at the end of this. It's been bad. It's been worse. If you'll do your part, search for God. It will get better. And God is coming back to reign forever and ever from generation to generation. Wherefore, do you forget us forever and forsake us so long time? That's our plaint. That's our thought. That's our attitude. How long will this go on? Turn you to us, or turn you us, let me start over. Turn you us to you, O Eternal, and we shall be turned, renew our days as of old. Now, that's the same thing we're told in Jeremiah 25, or 29. We're asking God to turn to us, and He says, I will. I will be found. If you'll just seek me, I'll be found. But you have utterly rejected us. You are very angry against us. So that's where we've been, brethren. But I've been trying to show you now for several weeks that all the major timing signals of the prophets have come together. And that there's no more delay, and it's time for God to turn to His true remnant. So we need to be scrambling to be sure we're part of that. You need to be more serious about having been taught the truth and baptized into the church of God, whether it was 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago or not. You need to be more serious right now than you were the day you got baptized that was only a beginning. We should have shown some growth by now, but we lagged and fell behind and got cast out so that we might truly repent in the way that we should have repented when we were baptized, but didn't know how, didn't know what. And we're like newborn babes, kind of ignorant. But we've been around a while now. And I think we have enough knowledge to know what we need to do to get ourselves ready. But to be a hearer only does us no good. We need to be doers. And if we will seek Him with our whole heart, He will very shortly turn to us. But what you and I do will not change what He is going to do in the least. Follow me?
what those do who respond, he will turn his face to. Those who do not, he won't, and they'll be cast out into the tribulation. So him blessing his people does not depend on you and me as individuals. Him blessing you and me as individuals as part of the remnant does depend upon us. Now, what I'm thankful for is that all through these scriptures, it says, if you will turn to me, I will bless you, and I will forgive you. And anything you've done in the past will be forgotten because you will shine in the light of my face. And we need to be doing whatever we possibly can so that when he turns his face to shine, it shines on us.